Studio Stories, Studio Stories. A podcast reminiscing on Twin Cities dance history. All stories are connected, new ones woven from threads of the old. Hi, I'm Matthew Jindusky. Welcome to Studio Stories. Today our return guest from our very first Studio Stories to celebrate our 100th episode uh, is Caroline Palmer. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me again, Matthew, and congratulations on 100 episodes. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like streamers and things should be coming down <laughs> in space. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it was really awesome to have you on our first. I felt like that was like the right um, direction for this new adventure of my own. And it was really funny listening back to that very first episode, like Joe Crook, like we have to do a call out to Joe who really helped me set all of this up technology wise. Um, I was like, Oh, Joe, I miss having Joe around. Um, (laughs) But yeah. So thank you so much for, for being a part of this with us today. And, you know, people can go to our archives always on our website. Um, all the studio stories are there and we can listen to your original interview with you, uh, give a sense of what you are up to with the history as an independent writer uh, with many publications and your own blog, Big Dance Town, uh, and the writing of your book, Making a Scene about the history of the Twin Cities dance community. Uh, There's a, a lot of information in that very original one that I definitely have garnered so much information from that first one, which inspired me then to reach out to so many new people that I didn't even think about uh, or know about. Uh, but something that, Caroline, I wanted to start with uh, is where did where did your passion for dance begin for you? Because I know from that original episode, again, you were you talked about being a publicist at DTW and PS122. The pillow, I mean, just the uh, echelons of dance (laughs) in New York and and festivals that, but I feel like there must have been some like spark before that. Yeah, there was. I mean, I, as I was growing up, I took ballet and um, a lot of that was because I was interested in gymnastics and I used to compete in gymnastics, so I took ballet class to support the you know competitive work that I was doing in gymnastics. But then when I went to college in New York at Barnard, I started taking dance classes again, and that's where I got introduced to modern dance and to contact improvisation and just sort of the whole world opened up to me. I was taking ballet too. But I got to take modern dance classes from people like Hana Khan, who used to teach with or who used to perform with Twyla Tharp. I um, took classes from Ellen Graff, who had been with the Martha Grand Company. And probably the, the professor who most sparked my interest was Cynthia Novak, who uh, she and her partner, Richard Bull, were big leaders in contact improvisation in New York at the time. And she ended up writing a book on contact improvisation too. And that just really opened my world up to the downtown art scene and what was going on. And Cynthia Novak would send us to, to performances all over the city. She was my dance history 
professor. And so she was encouraging us to go everywhere, you know, from PS122 to the Asia Society, to Lincoln Center. I mean, anywhere we had the opportunity to go. And, and I feel so fortunate because New York City was my classroom and not many people get to have that opportunity. And I was um, just so privileged to have professors in the dance program at Barnard who just sent us out into the city and encouraged us to see everything, take classes. And that's where we started to learn how to write about dance too. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, like how did, what, what groups were you kind of getting to see at that time? Wow. I mean, mean, the kind of cool thing about that is, you know, we were seeing, you know, people who were really starting to emerge and, and who are the, the, you know, major voices in postmodern dance today, you know, so we were seeing Bill T. Jones. We were going to see um, the performance art on the Lower East Side or at the kitchen. You know, I saw Karen Finley. I saw um, people like uh, um, Nina Wiener or, um, boy, there were just so many Douglas Dunn, uh, you know, some of the Judson Church people, of course, were still incredibly active at that time in the Grand Union folks, you know, so we would read about them in class and then go to see them performing mm-hmm. still in the, in the ways that they were doing it at that point, you know, like David Gordon. Um, but, you know, really what, what brought me in was going to see the um, very postmodern experimental works that were going on in places like PS122 in the kitchen. And that's where I really got hooked. Hmm. <laughs> Very good. And and do you feel like in the writing of, of dance, like how did you like get into the being a publicist and, and writer? Was it like encouragement of, of like, hey, you've got some kind of, skill here with the writing and and taking in dance specifically because I feel like that's a really hard a hard gig <laughs> yeah I was again I, I just kind of fell into this in a way I was super fortunate um I got some internships when I was in college I uh interned actually one summer at the National Endowment for the Arts and there um at the time was their interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary arts program. And so I was in DC doing that for the summer. And I met Erica Bornstein, who was the managing director of PS122, um, who was uh, doing some fellowship work down at NEA too. And um, when I got back to New York, she said, hey, you know, you can come be an intern at PS122 if you want to. And so I jumped on that chance and interned there. And then when they needed a publicist, because I had been helping out the publicist who was working there at the time, a job opportunity opened up and, and they allowed me to you know jump into that role after I graduated, which seems really crazy when you think about it now. But uh, you know, things uh, were, you know, just if you were there and you were committed and, and ready to do it, it, it happened. And so after that, I was doing, you know, press releases and helping to publicize the shows at PS122. And then Paper Magazine was an amazing downtown publication at the time. They were looking for more writers. And one of the choreographers 
who I knew and had been doing some freelance work for named Joe Andres, uh, suggested me as somebody who could write for them. And then next thing you knew, I was lucky enough to have a monthly column and, and it kind of went from there. But I was really young. I was, you know, 22. Oh. I, I don't know if the things would really happen like that now, but at the time in, in the late 80s, early 90s, that's kind of the way things went. Amazing. And yeah, paper magazine. I remember I'm kind of a magazine whore <laughs> uh, <laughs> back in the 80s as well, even yes. more so without internet. <laughs> it was so heavy. But uh, yeah, paper magazine was just so cool. Like the It was really cool. I don't think I even fully understood how cool it was when I was there until later on. But it was just, I mean, it was the hub of the New York City nightlife. Uh, a lot of the club scene folks were there. Um, we would have all kinds of amazing people who would come into our office, which was located on Broadway in Prince and Soho. Like Elmo Devar came in there one day and um, Joey Arias and, you know, Lady Bunny and, you know, all huh? kinds of fixtures of the downtown scene were just in there, you know, dropping something off or visiting people. And, uh, you know, we were just, you know, off in our little corners, uh, proofreading things and editing things, but, um, it was incredible who was coming through that place. Yeah. Gosh. Wow. Just amazing. And I feel like that also that time frame in New York as well, like you said the early eighties, well, I, was in, I started in school in 1985, um, okay. and then I went on to PS122 and paper in 1989, 1990. Yeah, and we mentioned a little bit in the original interview again of the AIDS epidemic, and like I feel like for you to be in New York at, during that time frame of where it was like really coming to, you know, kind of a larger lens on it uh with artists at that time specifically in the arts community what it what a tragic and interesting time to be there it really was i mean there were uh of course many people who uh came through ps122 and the other spaces that i worked with we've lost um some people are still going but many many important artists were lost during that time. It was also when ACT UP and other activist groups like Queer Nation were really, you know, pushing, you know, to get changes, to, to go and do the protests, to block the streets. I went to a few of those, you know, but there was so much activism going on alongside the art at that time. And, it really was part of the whole conversation of, you know, who was affected and, and how it came into the work. And um, that's, I think, another thing that really just stayed with me is that relationship between art and activism. It was so intertwined at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, uh, it was, it was certainly fun to listen back to our original conversation Um I feel even so much more connection to the lineage of the Twin Cities dance history that I've learned from that first interview with you to now getting to listen to others that I've gotten to talk to and uh, reached out to because of our first interview. Um, 
I think I think uh, we can kind of think of this new conversation today at episode 100 as a, a check-in with you and hear of where your book Making a Scene is now. Is that the title still? Yeah, it is. I think uh, we've still got that working title on it. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for that opportunity to talk about it in your first episode. And, uh, you know, it's been a couple of years and so much has happened <laughs> since yeah. then. And it, it took a little bit of a break, you know, because of the pandemic. And uh, I work at the Department of Health. So my brain was very focused for a little while on other things. But as we all started to steadily find our way uh, through the new world of the pandemic and afterwards, I was able to pick up the proposal that I was working on again and uh, shape that with the University of Minnesota Press. And uh, they were terrific in, in finding some uh, folks to look at the proposal, to provide feedback for me to respond to. And then out of that, we really continued to shape what the book is going to look like. And then earlier this year, they finally gave me the go ahead uh, to uh, do an advanced contract on the book, which means that I will be providing them a book draft at the end of next summer. Um, they will you know, take a look at that and decide whether to go forward. Um, but I think uh, there's just a wealth of information to include and part of our conversations have been around how and what to include because it, you know we could we could do a encyclopedic set yeah, <laughs> on yeah. what the advanced community <laughs> looks like here and we've been trying to figure out you know do you do this in a way that is just you know you start from the very beginning and move through and kind of do highlights or do we really focus on some key voices along the way? And, and certainly, you know, those key voices can't represent everybody, but identifying who those key voices are and then in a way sort of doing like a spoken hub out from those key voices mm. about all the other people they've connected with and worked with along the way um, is the way it's going to, I think, end up looking. Okay. Oh, great. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's the thing is the impact and the, knowledge information which is why the history is so important um to understand that lineage and connection um so i love it that it's having those spokes out as well the, those connection points is well, there are like you family... oh sorry go ahead no you go for it yeah it's, it's almost like a family tree your genealogy in a way because when you start to look at one person and then realize how they were connected, influenced other people and, you know, how you go back generations and that, that connection is made. I think that really is one of the things that stands out to me now about this community as I've been looking into it more. And um, I'm going to be really starting to talk to people more this, this fall to make those connections. Uh, it, it's, just a huge family tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, looking at just myself as a an artist, like all of the, you know, influences, the experiences I've had, it, it all ties in, whether it's something that I hold on to and, and want to embrace or something like, oh, that's not something I yeah. want to do <laughs> as, a, right. as a choreographer, as a dancer, as a, an artist, you know, it's like, all of it is so tied together and influenced by 
so many, um, you know, and then those influences are from that other one. So exactly, a family tree is a beautiful uh, way to describe it, honestly. Right. And it's kind of funny as you're saying, you know, there's some influences that you can just embrace and carry with you the whole time. And and there's always those parts of the family tree that you're like, maybe I'll just disavow that part. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, you know, okay. not for me. And, yeah. and and that's that's the beauty of it too. And and that's the other challenge in this book is is capturing those tension points because there are many, as there should be in, in any, you know, thriving community um, over the years. And uh, navigating through those tension points and seeing what led to them and then what came out of them is, I think, really one of the most exciting parts of looking at this. And, and their editors that I've been working with really like that, too, is that's the meat of the story is, you know, mm. not just the incredible work and the vision and the creativity, but also where did people, you know, battle it out in a way about what they thought, you know, really mattered in dance and, you know, where the dance was going. And so I think that's something that is difficult to navigate through as a writer, but also really adds another layer of richness to the story. Yeah. Yeah. I think that tension obviously like draws a line in the sand in a way of like, I'm going this way. And then it creates this whole other beautiful thing. Uh, from that tension right or or, or disaster <laughs> disaster yeah I mean it could be both um but I think a lot of times it, it's it's beautiful because it's sometimes it's artists say, who've worked together for a long time and then saying you know what this isn't working anymore I'm gonna go my way and then they you know really blossom into something else by taking that big leap, you know, out of what may have been a safe space for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if if you're able to share presently uh, a little bit of a lens into that world of the book. Is that something we could talk about today, or? Sure. Yeah. So, so what uh, what perhaps do you imagine that first chapter to look like? <laughs> Yeah, the first chapter is, I think, really going to, that will take us back in time. You know, it, it will, I, I'm not going to be spending a lot of time in this book on the <clears throat> older history of the community, but I think we need to really ground the book in the people who were there early on, who put the Twin Cities on the map, who uh, saw the early work that came through, um, through Vaudeville who made their own companies, who went to New York and created those connections and who started to build some sort of uh, dance community here. So all of that basis needs to be laid uh, so that we have a framework for where everything kind of comes from out of that. So a lot of that is going to be looked at. And, and the one thing I've been kind of learning along the way, and, and I'm treating this with extreme humility because it's not my area of expertise at all, is of course, you know, as, as we've learned, um, you know, more and more lately, we cannot talk about work mm. or arts without looking at who was here first, <laughs> which yeah. were Native American people who have cultures extending back centuries, you know, who have a, a dance tradition, who have an arts tradition, who have that as so key to, to, their way of life. And 
I am in no way, you know, equipped to to be an expert or to talk about that in a way that goes into extreme depth. But um, what I can do is um, set the stage and say, yes, we're maybe talking more about largely Western dance forms um, and this in this book, but um, we need to also pay attention to um, Minnesota itself and who was here in Minnesota, who continues to be here in Minnesota with the land we're dancing on and uh, pull that into the story too. Yeah, critical, critical information. And thankfully more awareness being paid to that uh, yes. acknowledgement for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so from that, from that space, um, I find it, you know, interesting as well in kind of talking about that uh, talking about the activism that you were a part of within new york's uh mid to early 90s mid 80s to early 90s with aids and the arts activism of being censored and things like that i feel like now as well there's this great um perception of of how or what dance looks like now with the impacts of COVID with, with that acknowledgement of, you know, uh, what truly was here before us and uh, decolonizing and uh, the needed uprising for equity and inclusion. Uh, we touch on it briefly in that original conversation as well, because uh, it was very brand new. Uh, when we first started this, I think the pandemic was two months in maybe. Uh, but kind of looking now at the dance community in the Twin Cities, what's your perception of how things are going? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the other thing that has changed in this book, uh, because you're right, um, you know, that the, the focus on equity on um, these colonizing art forms, these uh, ways that um, different traditions and cultures have been co-opted in different ways, the ways that we're all paying greater attention to that really have to come through in this book now in a way that I don't think I was as prepared to do mm. before when we were first talking about it. And of course, we've had the pandemic, we've had the murder of George Floyd, We've had the uprising associated with that. We've had other instances of police violence in our community. We've had just <laughs> so much going on in the world around us. It, it just is changes the norm, right? Every day, <laughs> there's, yeah. it seems like there's big change. And I think um, what I've found in, in looking at this book now and again, talking with the editors is we really have to take a more critical eye as we look at uh, the changes that have occurred in the dance community over the decades and, and then into this really fast track time over the recent couple of years and, and where that brings us to now and how the landscape looks so much different. And I do think that, you know, before the pandemic and with the rise of Trump you know, that activism was starting to come back in again. Um, now, of course, you know, not only do we have the after effects of Trumpism, we have COVID, we have 
the uh, racial equity awakening. Now we have the loss of the right to abortion in our mm-hmm. country in many ways. It's still you know, a battle we're going to fight for a long time here in Minnesota. So all the time now, I think the arts are in a new place uh, where you know, maybe it is a time again, like the 1960s where there was the Vietnam War or the 1980s where there was AIDS, um, where art has to really take a hard look about the, the things that are swirling around it and how it's going to respond to it. And I think for the dance community, you know, one of the things where, you know, the book is going to end, you know, sort of with, uh, the pandemic and, and the murder of George mm-hmm. Floyd and, um, you know, the place that the dance community finds itself in just like other arts communities where dance being this art form that is experienced live, you know, not having this opportunity to have audiences, not having this opportunity to perform on stages. I know a lot of people took their artwork and their dance out into the parks and into other places, which was so important at the time. And they kept doing work on film and online. And, um, there's a lot about that, that I think, uh, it can be seen as a positive, you know, because while dance is an artwork that's meant to be experienced live, I've also really appreciated that more artists have been uh, providing videos of their work, you know, for people who can't make it to the performance. So you can see it, you know, and and still have the opportunity to uh, experience, you know, an aspect of it. So I think for the community itself, boy, just so much whiplash over the past couple of years and sort of finding itself again and figuring out, you know, how to perform live again, how to have people feel safe seeing performances, how to have dancers feel safe performing together. I mean, I've seen, you know, even recently, you know, some performances get canceled because the dancers got sick, you know, so just, uh, it's a really challenging, challenging time. But I also think a lot of people have been, you know, as you would expect, been incredibly creative and found new ways to work with the situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's really pressing my, uh, perseverance (laughs) in, in dance, honestly, like the amazing dancers that we are losing to, you know, financial stability. And, you know, I've, I have always, I've had this sense that with the internet and dance on film and people's you know dance is just not exposed and discussed enough um you know it's it's a it's kind of a a small community in a way of people that appreciate uh dance and and support it and i feel like that that has i'm gonna get a little negative here i think (laughs) but it keeps dwindling um and and i feel dancers in order to feel stable in life are having to work more so they're not able to practice dance so the the taking of dance uh, at classes has has really became small uh, or just doesn't work in their schedule it's just very random that they're able to make it um, so that kind of like professional focus and I, I always put the word professional in quotes um, but that focus of, of continuing to grow as a human and as a dancer has really, the challenges of that are just really, really right there. And 
uh, it's been very interesting because it also then costs more to produce a, a performance, uh, you know, adding in that layer of video to make it feel less just this two dimensional thing. Like how can it feel a little like, it's almost like we have to make films which cost more money, you know, uh, and, yeah. and the dwindling of, uh, grant funds you know there's two grants basically that organizations and individuals can apply to so then the competition level of that uh, has really increased so it's like i wonder how much we're losing uh within all that yeah i think that's a really really important point and uh i do think people you know the pandemic was frightening because I think for a lot of people, you know, if they were not on the brink of homelessness and losing things may have been there, you know, and we're losing all sorts of stability through their work and, and their, their lives and, and keeping things going just to survive, um, you know, for a, you know, field like dance where everybody is always on the edge anyway even in the best of times yeah. um really really scary um in in more recent years and and yeah then things have to go like whether or not you can take class or where do you have to prioritize your time and energy in order to keep going and and that's incredibly sad and and i think what it's in danger of happening which i you know may have already happened in a lot of ways is you know because it's a small community and a small support group of people for the community, it's it's shrinking down even more. And then the coverage of dance shrinks down more because um, people are saying, well, is it, is it that visible anymore? Are we gonna focus on something else? And so it, it unfortunately just becomes this, this awful cycle. And, mm. and I think we, you know, really, when you say, you know, just two grant opportunities, and then we think back a couple of decades, you know, to, to what a thriving philanthropic community we had here for dance, I mean, compared to the rest of the country, I mean, it was still competitive, for sure. But um, there were more opportunities and chances and support, and um, more places to perform and more presenting going on. And so, um, you know, you, you do just kind of have to stop every once in a while and go, what happened? <laughs> here you know and and it you know there are phases and times and cycles and you know maybe in another five or ten years we'll see something entirely different um and and maybe it'll be on an upswing again but uh it really is a a time for uh hardy souls i think <laughs> to figure out how to continue on in in this field so yeah yeah i think martha graham um I think it's a Martha Graham. I I can't quote it, but the paraphrase of like, I'm sorry, you've been struck by the bug yeah. <laughs> of the dance and something, something to that effect. You know, it's like, yep, this is what I do. I can't, you know, it's everything that I want to be doing and focusing on and uplifting and helping however I can um, for dance itself which yeah. is exciting too. Like I know there, you know, fortunately there are young choreographers that are making things happen, you know, and it's like good on you, like mm -hmm. that perseverance and like getting your voice out there 
um, it, at this time, you know, that that struggle is just so real. Um, all the greater, you know, all the all the um, just the fight and like, yep, this is what I'm I'm going to make this work, you know, and and things are happening. So there's this kind of like encouragement of seeing that and and seeing that um, new voices coming in and and making things happen is is really exciting. Yeah, I agree with you. And and I think, you know, dancers, of course, and choreographers in the field have always had to have an entrepreneurial spirit. But I think for this newer generation coming in, it's all the more so, you know, and they're, they're good at using social media and, and crowdfunding and uh, different platforms to get their work out. Um, I, you know, they, they are so savvy when it comes to messaging and to just, you know, putting their work out in a way that is really different than the more traditional ways that, you know, we may have been used to. So while I think they, you know, are definitely in a difficult place in terms of the support that, that others um, may have had in the past, I also think that they're just amazingly creative <laughs> Yeah. in the way that they, they get their work out there too. Now, at the same time, you know, what I want to make sure is that they, they do get the uh, support that they need and that they're not all just doing this, you know, because, <clears throat> you know, I mean, it's important to them, <clears throat> excuse me, and they want to get the work out there, but we don't want to take advantage of that either. We want them to be supported. We want them to, to have, you know, the resources that they deserve to do their work. Um, and I hope, you know, as they really push through and kind of change the way the structure of the dance field looks, that they will find new ways in order to um, be compensated and supported for the work that they're doing. Yeah. And I, I do feel, Caroline, you have a great perspective on this as well. Being a dance writer for so many years with the Star Tribune and, and other independent publications, like, um, with internet and with newspapers struggling to have subscriptions and and you know people uh covering dance specifically has really also been affected by this which then just goes back to that cycle again of nobody's going to know about it <laughs> you know like oh these things are happening but you you can't find the information uh about it can we can you share a little bit of your thoughts on that kind of, you know, I, fortunately Sheila Regan's writing about dance right now, and I'm not too familiar with anyone else uh, in, in this Minnesota community uh, yeah. covering well, dance. She, yeah. Sheila is, is really holding it down for a lot of the community. She, she's doing an amazing job and, and keeping that going. And unfortunately we lost Pamela Espelin. Yeah. We love dance and, and so many arts and was a, and a wonderful supporter in the arts community. And so that was, that was a big hit when, when she went um, and uh, we lost her. Uh, so I think that um, it's, it's a really tough time for dance writing and it has been for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, what I think has taken over unfortunately in terms of dance is so much focus on the pop culture aspects of dance you know people can really 
spend hours talking about and, and not that it's not valid it is you know about you know the, the dance shows on tv or um the music artists who really integrate dance into their work and there's a lot of great things to talk about there and and we should but it's taken all the um, space <laughs> away from the other art um, of dance that is out there that doesn't get the same kind of attention. And so there are writers out there. Um, you know, there are ven venues and platforms that are um, local or national where, where dance writing can and take place. Um, I think my fear, though, is that it becomes a bit of an echo chamber where the people who are writing, you know, for each other and kind of commenting for each other, which is nothing wrong with that, but it just shrinks even more <laughs> the reach of dance as an art form into the, you know, broader community because there are still, you know, of course, audiences that want to see dance and, you know, maybe they want to see something a little more mainstream, um, like a, a ballet performance, but you know, if those ballet companies have the opportunity to introduce uh, postmodern choreographers into that work, that, that opens the door um, to, to seeing other things on other stages. So I think, yeah, the dance writing field is in a pretty hard place right now. And it, it has been for a really long time. I, I don't even know now if there's just one or two full-time dance critics in the whole country or something like that. One wow, of wow. The Washington Post. I mean, it's, it's really that, <laughs> that dire and, you know, for, for dance critics like myself and others, we've always had to have other jobs. It's not been something we can make a full-time gig out of, but, um, you know, even more so, I, I think a lot of people who are writing on the internet are doing it out of the love of it. They're, you know, they want to keep alive, but it, it's, it's super disappointing and sad to see that evolution that dance it, it, I was reading something that Marcia Siegel had actually written um, about the, the knowing in anticipation of this interview to talk about sort of the, the stage of dance writing that we're at right now. And she was just talking about the loss of memory and, you know, the fact that we're, we, you know, dance really relies on people being able to record the memory of what happened there on the stage, you know, and yes, you've got video and film, but it's that person writing it down, talking about the movement, talking about, the themes, you know, talking about how the bodies were interacting with each other, that act of recording the memory is something mm -hmm. that we're losing fast. And that is a tremendous loss to the field. Yeah, that's really a beautiful uh, idea and description. It makes me think of when I read, when I do read an, a review of, of someone's work, it's like, it helps me remember it, that, that memory component, but it also uh, gives me a little bit more information or insight to kind of go off in my mind <laughs> of appreciation, appreciating it more or having a little deeper understanding of it um, that maybe I didn't get in watching it live and seeing it, you know, it like makes me think about it in a different way. Um, sometimes that that I, I didn't realize. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and of course, it's one person's perspective. And, you know, I might focus on something entirely different that you will, and then the person next to you will look at something entirely different. But 
I think it's fascinating to see what that one person thought was important to write about and, you know, what they focused in on and what really resonated with them. And so while you're recording that memory, it may be one person's memory, but it does give you, um, you know, a, a interesting flashes of, of what happened on the stage. And, uh, you know, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing that we really have to fight for in the world of dance is, is how um, this work is recorded and kept and um, preserved, you know, for, for people to be able to talk about or write about in another, you know, 25, 50 years, you know, I'm again, extremely lucky because, a lot of it was recorded, you know, in the era that I'm writing about, you know, we had some writers that were pretty active and um, I can look at that. I can look at interviews. I can look at the feature stories that were put out there. There's just not that many feature stories anymore that talk about it. And so I have a wealth of information to pull from for this book, aside from the actual lived experiences that people can talk about, but, you know, I don't know what will that look like, you know, when somebody goes to do the history of dance in the, you know, early 21st century. And it's, it's going to be crucial. I think really, you know, for you doing this podcast is, is probably one of the main things that people are going to need to have in the future is the fact that you are recording all these voices and all these memories and all these experiences and insights in a way that people will be able to use in the future because it won't be so much the written word. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Caroline, I, I so thank you for uh, jumping in to, to celebrate this hundredth uh, episode with us. I, again, I, I reached out to you a little late there uh, in the game of like, Oh, it'd be great. And, and you made it happen. And, <laughs> You know, I, I really so appreciate you shining a light on the dance community here with with your book, Making a Scene. Uh, I'm going to continually kind of check back in with you to to see how it's going um, and, and hopefully get to share that as well. Because, again, that's that's part of why I do this, that sharing of the history. I, I feel like a broken record now. I, I feel like I say this after every episode, but the importance of that lineage, that family tree that you discussed earlier of, of getting to, to see that and experience it and, and just share the importance of dance is important people, (laughs) you know, like, like, yeah. And, and uh, I, I definitely want and hope that that audience you know, people that don't even know that they might like dance or can appreciate it, uh, can find it. So thank you so much for joining us here today (laughs) on Studio Stories and and continue to shine that light that you are shining. I will. Thank you so much, Matthew, for for doing Studio Stories and, and for, you know, I'm really honored to be part of your 100th episode and to have been part of your first episode. And maybe I can come back for your 200th episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, have a great one. Thank you. You too. Thanks for joining us today. Next week, we speak with Eva Moan, currently with the Kahlberg Ballet, the National and International Repertory Contemporary Dance Company in Sweden. 